Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Jesse Jarneau about his book, Big Day Coming, Yola Tango and the Rise of Indie Rock, published in 2012 by Gotham Books. Yola Tango embodies what is called indie rock, and Jarneau chronicles the band, the scene, and the genre in great detail. He begins with a short history of Hoboken, New Jersey, the band's hometown, and the birthplace of baseball. Indeed, the band members and a regular cast of scene regulars gathered every Sunday for many years to play softball in a local lot. He tells of Georgia Hubley's and Ira Kaplan's, the married two-thirds core of the band, growing up years in intellectually and artistically liberal households. He tells of Ira's early rock journalism career with New York Rocker, of the early days of Maxwell's, the seminal Hoboken Rock Club, and the musical juxtaposition of Hoboken and its more worldly cross-river neighbor, Manhattan. And the book isn't just about Yola Tango, though they are the center of the story. It's also about college radio, represented by freeform station WFMU, fanzines, New York Rocker and Conflict, recording labels, Bar None, Alias and Matador, and clubs, Maxwell's and Gertie's Folk City. It's about bands, the Feelies, the Smithereens, Mo Fungo, NRBQ, Lamb Chop, A-Bones, Anti-Atom, Christmas, the DBs, Dump, Sunra and his orchestra. Baseball, the New York Mets. Culinary Cuisine, Prince's Hot Chicken Shack. And events, weekly softball games, Yola Tango's Eight Nights of Hanukkah. All in all, Big Day Coming is a detailed case study of one band's career and the social structure that helped build them and, at the same time, that they helped build. Jesse Jarneau lives in Brooklyn, New York, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hi, Jesse, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Cool. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, uh, actually, let's start... Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little of your biography? Um, sure. Um, well, um, I guess I've, you know, I've been writing about music for a really long time. Um, I guess I probably started technically when my dad brought, my dad worked at home. He was a, he was a visual artist, um, and brought home a, a Xerox machine when I was pretty little, and I started making zines up in his third floor workspace at our house, uh, you know, probably when I was nine or ten years old, maybe even younger than that, um, and it, I was, I've, I've always been a, you know, completely freaky music fan from the time my mom started playing me records um, when I was little, so pretty naturally, very quickly, I started writing about music in these little homemade zines, and that kind of turned into you know, making zines in high school and writing for the school paper. And then I didn't really write for, you know, I didn't do really any kind of journalism at in, in college, but around that time is when, you know, kind of the web sort of burbled into existence. And I, I very quickly started uh, writing about music, um, both on early websites and on message boards. And by the time I graduated from college, I had a bunch of um, sort of, semi-regular writing gigs, some of which were unpaid and some of which were paid. And I moved to Brooklyn, and I I decided to, you know, see if I could make a stab at music writing for a year and figured if I didn't, I would, you know, go back to school or, or figure out some other way to make a living. And and thankfully, it, it kind of worked out. Um, so I, I, you know, did that and been doing that pretty much ever since, along with, you know, other stuff like a, a radio DJ. And I ended up with a gig on, uh, on WFMU, the great uh, freeform radio station in Jersey City. Um, you know, I play music. I, I do other stuff. So, so where did you live before Brooklyn? Uh, well, I went to college in Ohio at Oberlin uh, for four years, um, and I grew up on Long Island in a town called Northport, which is... Um, Maybe most famous for me in the town where Jack Kerouac became an embittered alcoholic conservative um, in his later years. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And, and how did you come to write this book particularly? Well, um, I moved, yeah, I moved to New York um, in 2001, and I've been, a, you know, I think I had a one, maybe two Yellow Tango albums on tape that I'd copied from friends or roommates in college or whatever. Um, and then when I moved to New York, um, well, one thing that happened was uh, one of my roommates at the time was a, was a big Yellow Tango fan, so she was always listening to them. But they also were just playing around New York all the time because, you know, they're from Hoboken, which is right across the river, and they also really like to play. So I caught them, I'm trying to remember when the, I get, you know, it's just, I started seeing them not long after I moved here, maybe early, I think, in the, the next spring in like 2002, and just started seeing them all the time. Like, it seemed like every month or two there was like, either a Yola Tango headlining show or they were on some benefit. Um, and right in there, I got assigned a feature story about them for, for the magazine Signal to Noise, which is which is kind of like an avant-garde jazz magazine that I was writing for. And that was kind of my first excuse to really start digging into their history and their, you know, their backstories and, and their old, you know, catalog. Um and that was the point where I really deeply fell in love with their music was, was, was kind of like putting that story together and kind of pretty naturally they just sort of became this very embedded soundtrack to, to my life to really like almost every part of it. They've got all those, um, you know, they're all kind of, they're diff- a lot of different facets to their music. They kind of have, you know, a rock, you know, sort of a straight up rock pop side, but also sort of, a noisy experimental side where they work with, you know, especially at that point they were working with like other dimensions in music a lot and the, and the members of the Sun Ra Orchestra. And then they also have this side that, you know, really heartbreakingly beautiful quiet songs, which being at that point in my life kind of a seemingly perpetual single person in all kinds of romantic strife, you know, really served my emotions quite well. And, through all of that, I just started, you know, like I was saying, digging into their history, and the more I, the more music of theirs I learned, and the more of their story I learned, it just seemed like there was even more to learn and more to discover um, about them. And you know, I guess 2004 was the state was the first time I really started going to see their Hanukkah shows. I'd caught one of them previously. But they do eight nights. They perform eight nights of Han- all eight nights of Hanukkah at Maxwell's, which is sort of their home base in Hoboken. And every night the set list is pretty different, and they have different surprise guests and different comedians. And I I really remember over the course of that that first Hanukkah where I went to you know maybe five or six of the shows that year, just you know, all the different reference points that they were putting across, like, you know, all the different bands they were covering, all these, this sort of cavalcade of guests from, you know, both, you know, huge bands, but also bands that were really small and were just their friends that nobody had maybe, that not very many people had heard of outside their immediate scene. So just kind of coming into, con- you know, coming into contact with this sort of constellation of references and really, like, getting the real you know, getting the bigger picture of what, of how all those pieces fit together into, into this big, you know, this bigger narrative, that was kind of the moment where it seemed like they were, there was maybe a book in there or maybe, you know, that was a point where it really just seemed like an enormous story that was beyond like a band that I was enjoying. Mm-hmm. And it took, you know, it took another, it took more than, you know, another five or six years before it actually turned into a book. And I certainly wasn't pitching it as a book at that point, but kind of during those five or six years, my love for Yola Tango did nothing but grow. And and even after having written this book, it does nothing but continue to grow. So um, it was a long process between falling in love with them and actually, uh, write, you know, proposing and writing this book. But that, mm-hmm. was, that was sort of how it happened. Great. And now to the book uh, itself. And from what I can see um, in reading it, there, there seems to be three themes. Uh, the first two are pretty obvious. They're in the title of the book, uh, you know, Yola Tango, the band. Also, indie rock and as a structure and as a genre. But also, I think place is an important thing. And you've already kind of mentioned, you know, Hoboken and Maxwell's and, you know, rock scenes and rock bands tend to grow up 
you know, in the context, uh, uh, a sociological context, cultural context. So why don't we start with scene and tell us about Hoboken and where they came from. Sure. Um, well, you know, if you ask them pretty much, the you know, about what they love about Hoboken, generally they get sort of kind of bashful, as, as, as they will, and, you know, say something along the lines of, well, it's near New York, which is definitely true, and that's, you know, a big reason why a lot of musicians moved to Hoboken to begin with in the, in the late 70s, and that it was near Manhattan, the rent was, was cheaper. It was just, a, you know, sort of a logical place to go. Brooklyn hadn't quite caught on yet in terms of being kind of a viable place for a music scene to grow. And Hoboken had this club called Maxwell's, which is still there, which is, you know, where you all tango plays their Hanukkah shows and hang out a lot of other times. But I don't think this wasn't really the real deeper reason why why Hoboken turned into what it did. Um, and, you know, the simple version really is that Hoboken is close to Manhattan. And Manhattan has been this, you know, cultural power center in New York going back a couple of centuries, you know, kind of to the, you know, probably to the Dutch era, you know. And um, Hoboken has this key advantage of being near New York, but being decisively not New York. It takes a little bit of time to get there. You've got to, you know, these days you have to take a path train to get there or take, you know, a bus or a ferry or something like that. And it's, you know, so you're really, first of all, you're removing yourself from Manhattan, from kind of like the gravity of just being in New York and kind of the crazy hustle and bustle of being in New York. And then once you get to Hoboken, to get to the place where, um, you know, that's sort of key to the Yolotango store, which is Maxwell's, it's another, you know, 15 minutes to either, you know, a walk uptown or, or a taxi ride or a bus trip or something like that. So you're really, like, kind of doubly removing yourself from the city. And I feel like it's kind of a place where the pressures of being in Manhattan start to really loosen up a little bit. And, you know, like a, a key way that I, I like to point out to describe that is, like, in the 70s when um, – Maxwell's open, you had these clubs in, in the city that were like, you know, Studio 54 and, and, and Van Pateri and places like that. And especially Studio 54, there were, you know, red, you know, red velvet, uh, you know, carpets and theater carpets, but, um, you know, the, what do you call it? The things at the door and bouncers and dress codes and private back rooms and Maxwell's. Ropes, and, maybe. Ropes, that's the word I'm looking <laughs> yeah. for. Thank you. It's early for me, um, and um, Maxwell's was never like that, Maxwell's was kind of this very low-key place, they have a, you know, a coat rack, they don't have a coat check, they have a place where people hang their coats and, and trust each other with their coats all night, um, and it's it's totally relaxed, and I, th- and I think there's a real, especially in the late 70s and early 80s, I think that, that vibe and that mood in Hoboken really mirrored the vibe and mood of sort of the the early stages of indie rock, which is that, you know, indie rock at that point was something that was really removed from mainstream rock and mainstream pop music. It wasn't about selling the gazillion records. It wasn't about filling arenas. It wasn't about, you know, wearing super tight clothing. It, you know, it wasn't about smoke machines. It was just very relaxed. Um, and Hoboken was a place that really embodied that. And I think that both, both Hoboken and Indie Rock in that way kind of became receptacles for Yola Tango or, you know, some place that allowed them to develop at their own pace, um, without having to worry about paying, say, astronomical rents or, you know, creating something that would, that could be really you know, fit in the, the pop music buzz cycle or making videos or anything like that. It was just a place where Yola Tango could be themselves. Um, and I think that has an enormous amount to do with with why, why they've stayed in Hoboken. Um, it's, you know, it's a really unpretentious place. It's, you know, it's, it's not fancy. It's not anything. It's just Hoboken. Um, <laughs> yeah. what, what about the influence of 
the the early to mid '70s punk scene centering around you know in the Bowery. Uh, what influence did that have on on your story? Well, or, I mean, the biggest influence it had on on my story was that um, Ira Ira Kaplan, Yellow Tango's guitarist, um, was a rock journalist before he was a musician. He grew up. Um, in a, in Croton, just about I think, 90 miles or so north of Manhattan, and kind of fell in love with punk music um, and kind of the rock scene in New York while he was still in college, and sort of precociously got a gig being a a, a biweekly columnist Soho Soho News um, in New York. So he was really a man on the scene in 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 a very true sense of of that phrase, um, where he was at CDs you know, most nights, well, maybe not most nights, but a lot, you know, and, and Max of Kansas City and all these and all these clubs kind of covering, like, you know, not just bands like the Ramones and television, but, but really getting down to the molecular level of the New York scene of, of all these musicians who were kind of circulating and, and putting out kind of one-off singles and playing one-off shows and, and just becoming a part of it. And Ira became, um, after he graduated from college, became the record reviews editor of New York Rocker, which was became this, or was, and continued to be, this very, very influential um, New York underground rock publication. I think people gave a lot of credit to Punk Magazine, you know, you know like McNeil's uh-huh. uh, magazine um, in that era. And I think, and that's not to take anything away from punk, because it definitely really embodied a lot of what that scene was about. But I think a lot of the reason that happened is because punk was called, the magazine Punk was called Punk. Um, and I think New York Rocker was really very responsible for creating kind of the infrastructure that would turn into indie rock. It kind of became this sort of publication that was both local and national, and even international at the same time, um, where they were covering all this local stuff that was going on in New York, as the name would imply, but they also had, you know, columnists from all these other scenes around the country and around the world, like people like um, Jim Jarmusch, who would go on to become, you know, this amazing film director, was covering Devo shows in Ohio for New York Rocker, and Stephen Morrissey, who would obviously go on to found the Smiths, was covering Sex Pistols, you know, sending in photos from Sex Pistols shows or, um, to New York Rocker. So it was really this, like, central point in this network that was both very much about New York music, but very, but also about this sort of bigger picture of, it, it, I mean, it wasn't really called indie rock at that point, but it was, the idea was that it was kind of like fan-to-fan communication as opposed to something like Rolling Stone, which is sort of, you know, quasi-serious journalism about rock music but really presenting it from this place of, of, of that these are big, powerful musicians and, you know, we're, we're going backstage or entering their secret layers or things like that. New York Rocker was just about people who were basically your contemporaries who happened to be making music. Um, and that reflected the New York punk scene and what was going on in the Bowery. Um, and I think that that scene in the Bowery, for Ira especially, for a lot of people, became a springboard for this much bigger thing and really wasn't limited to what, you know, we now think of as the New York punk scene. It was just kind of an entryway. Uh-huh. So, so you've told us now a little bit about uh, how, how Ira got involved. What about Georgia? Tell us a little bit about her and her upbringing. And sure. Her well, Georgia's upbringing is really um, remarkable. Um, her parents uh, were Faith and John Hubley, who were um, – two really important independent filmmakers of of kind of the mid and second half of the 20th century, um, animators. Uh, John Hubley was an animator at Disney. He he, he um, came up as an animator at Disney when he was in his 20s, worked on, you know, movies like Fantasia and Snow White, um, and eventually left Disney after a massive uh, artist strike. Um, and went on to do other commercial Hollywood cartoons like Mr. Magoo. Um, and George's, and George's mom, Faith, was really a, a pioneering woman, female filmmaker, um, 
who, when she and John um, got married, basically entered into what very quickly became a full creative partnership with John, um, where kind of their work was their life and their life was their work, and they would integrate their their children into their films. A pretty um, famous example of their filmmaking is um, an ad for a Mapo cereal in uh, the late the late 50s that featured their son, Mark, uh, George's brother, who became known as Marky Mapo. And it was this really um, very famous advertising campaign. And the, the, the hook of the advertising campaign was this phrase, I want my Mapo. And years later, that got turned into um, I want my MTV, which was a reference, a pretty direct reference to that. It was created by the same ad salesman, uh, George Lois. Um, but I want my MTV was, was pulling off the resonance of this ad that, that Faith and John had made, you know, a couple of decades before. So Georgia grew up in this, in this, um, very, very creative household, um, in New York's Upper West Side where, you know, parents and, you know, they're sick around the house. And she was the youngest of, uh, four siblings in the and it took her a little while to um, find a place, which was, as it turned out, as a drummer. So she's also an actor. Um, she designed the cover art for a lot of Yola Tango records. You can see some of her paintings. She just put out a new solo record called Little Black Egg that's got a really beautiful painting of hers on the cover. So she's still doing that. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, that's where Georgia came from. Uh-huh. And uh, how does she get involved in the... the the rock and roll scene? Um, well, you know, she grew up in New York, and Max of Kansas City was right there. So that's the, the, the short version. But the, the longer version is a little more complicated, which is that um, her older sister, Emily, who, you know, uh, went to uh, Hampshire College and became friends with this guy named Byron Coley, who very quickly was sort of become part of the nucleus of, of New York rocker and friends with Ira, and really a, a very, you know, he's probably, he's a book or two in his own right, you know, or somebody should write a book or two about him, and hopefully he'll put out a couple more books of his own stuff. But Byron is this really remarkable, obsessive collector character in, in underground rock history. Um, and... Emily Hubley, George's sister, and Byron became very close friends, and then Georgia and Byron became close friends, and that kind of pulled Georgia and Emily into this sort of New York rocker world in the, in, in Manhattan. And um, one of the big bands that was important in that scene was the Dee Dees, who practiced at the New York rocker office and would become one of the first bands to play at Maxwell's. Uh, Peter Holsapple, the guitarist in DVs, even lived at the New York rocker office on the couch for a while. Uh, Emily Hubley animated a video for them. So George and Emily were kind of like pulled into, into it through the DVs scene. And that was eventually how Georgia met Ira. Um, it was at a Feelys show at Maxwell's in 1980. Um, and yeah, that was, that was, that was how their circle finally overlapped. And as their circle overlaps, how do they how do they come to form uh, Yola Tango? Well, um, I think you know a lot of what they talk about is that both of them had creative aspirations before they started dating, uh, but both of them also had this, and still have kind of this. Like, it really often people use the word shy to describe them, but I'm not even sure that's. You know, I don't think that's the correct word to describe what they do. There is something very modest about both their, about both Georgia and Ira's creative aspirations. They're not the kind of people who are comfortable being up on stage, you know, in the spotlight, making a show of themselves. Decided to, you know, go play music together, and you know, they, you know Georgia played drums, Ira sort of played guitar, and the route that it took to turn into Yola Tango was very, very gradual. Um, it started with playing a couple of they a part rocker officer songs, and that was in uh, May of 1982. And kind of over the course of the next year or two after that, they would kind of continue to, you know, 
play cover songs at birthday parties and 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 find other events to do to to play at. And it was another year and change after they started playing, or finally they started playing a couple of original songs. And finally, by like 19, by the end of 1984, it was when you know what you know they played their first gig as Yola Tango, um, and they still played a lot of cover songs, and they still play a lot of cover songs um, even today. Um, but yeah, it was a very, very gradual path to becoming Yola Tango, which I think was very reflective of, of both their personalities. Is the New York, New Jersey indie punk scene, would you say it's more closely related to to London and England rather than, say, Los Angeles, maybe? Um, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I think the Hoboken scene was really kind of like a node in this growing American indie rock scene. And there was, you know, there wasn't a, you know, a direct full-on connection between between New York and L.A., but there were connections, like people like Byron Coley, who I mentioned before, was kind of, he would spend some months of the year crashing on the New York rocker couch, and then would hitchhike across the country and spend a few months in L.A. crashing on the couch at Slash Records. So there were kind of these back-and-forth connections between the New York and the L.A. scene. But I think, specifically, there was actually kind of an anti-British bent, um, especially in the New York rocker and Maxwell's part of uh, the, the American, the growing American indie rock scene, um, which is actually fairly tied to the story of Yola Tengo, and that there was a, a concert in um, early 1981 in London at the Rainbow Theater that was sort of booked to be the coming out of a bunch of New York bands in London. Like the DBs were were, were playing and the bongos were on the bill. Um, the Ray Beats played. And it was kind of you know, they were, they put them on the cover of, of Time Out in London that week. And Ira, uh, went over to cover that show. And as it turned out, Georgia went over to, to that show as well. And that, that was where they ended up sort of, you know, they started really talking to each other and, and kind of quickly became a couple after that. But that show was sort of infamous in that the show totally bombed. It was, um, it was half empty. None of the bands really played very well. And the music just didn't really catch on in England, um, which was sort of a parallel because in the United States, British music was real, you know, British Indian music was really catching on in a big way. And it kind of became an issue that New York Rocker, um, covered a bunch over the next few years. They're, they really became a champion and a champion of American music and, you know, would publish these editorials about, you know, why are, these, you know, why are American major labels picking up British records for distribution when, you know, there are these bands like the Replacements that they could, you know, distribute, you know, an independent record by in the United States. And kind of at that point, which is, you know, 1981, 1982, American indie rock and British indie rock really started to split. You know, British indie rock, I think, very much kind of sort of began to use a lot more sort of, you know, synthesizers and became seemingly to me a little bit more angsty and maybe even a little bit more fashion oriented than American indie rock, which kind of, you know, placed a little bit more emphasis on, to my ears, you know, experimentation and kind of sort of rough edged bands like The Replacements and and sort of the, the West Coast stuff like, you know, Black Flag and The Minutemen they were really kind of experimental and different and not quite so, you know, they were, they were dramatic in their own ways, but they were definitely different from sort of the, the melodrama that you get with the Sex Pistols and the Clash um, and bands like that. And of course there, are, you know, are exceptions on both sides of the pond to all these things that I'm saying and lots of major ones at that. There are, you know, certainly awesome British punk bands that Americans liked, you know, I guess, the, you know, the Raincoats is the one that, that pops to mind right now. But I think there really was a division between American indie rock and British indie rock. And um, especially when you get into Yoa Tango, you know, if you look at like just, for example, the lists of the list of songs that they've covered over the years, um, besides the Kinks, who they loved and, you know, kind of other sort of classic British bands like that. It's really 
far more American stuff than it is British stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when talking about indie rock, you, you have a, uh, a quote. You say, a new rock economy formed. What do you mean by a new rock economy? Well, there was kind of this new network of clubs and records, uh, record labels and and radio stations and, and publications like New York Rocker that all started emerging in the late 70s and early 80s and started connecting with each other. Um, one place that that um, just popped to mind when you asked that question is a record was a record store in Minneapolis called. Um, let's see if I can get this all right. Or folk joke opus which was the, you know, it was the place where you could pick up copies of New York Rocker in in the Twin Cities area. And it became kind of um, sort of the central hub for, for the Twin Tone scene that um, the replacements emerged out of and Husker Du emerged out of. Um, and there are all these places around the country sort of like that where all this stuff is, is crossing over in in some way where there there will be like a college radio station connecting to a local record store connecting to a local band and that's kind of this sort of new rock economy that existed both in local ways in in each individual city but also in this big national way where there was this you know new network of clubs that bands could play at and kind of knew which clubs were receptive to that kind of music and and where audiences receptive to that kind of music would go. The Louisville scene is another great example of that, which produced Antietam and before them, the, the Babylon dance band who became, who eventually, you know, sort of moved to Hoboken and then New York and became a, a, a part of the Yolatengo world. Um, so all these scenes were kind of discovering each other and it kind of turned into this bigger network that, that still very much exists today. Uh-huh. And in, and in Hoboken, uh, what were the important structural pieces, record stores or recording studios, etc.? Well, you know, Hoboken is, you know, they call it the mile square city. So it's, you know, there wasn't room for a whole lot of those things there. So kind of there was one club and one record store, basically, and one recording studio. And, you know, there, you know, maybe, you know, other others started up but never quite took off in the same way. Maxwell's was pretty much on, the only place to see this kind of music in Hoboken. And then... uh the record store was called Pure Platters, which was um, started by a couple of Maxwell's bartenders um, as well. There was seed money from Steve Fallon, who is Maxwell's owner, who is – I'll stop and mention here that Steve Fallon was a really indispensable part of the Hoboken scene, both as a, a very encouraging individual um, – and somebody who would hire lots of musicians to, you know, be bartenders or, you know, be bouncers or sound men in the case of Ira. Um, but he was also really, you know, because Maxwell was successful, Steve ended up becoming this sorts of capital for, to, and seed money for, for other Hoboken music ventures. Um, one of which was Pure Platters, which was started by some Hoboken bartenders. Another was Water Music, which became Hoboken's first real recording studio. Steve, you know, had some money in that as well. Um, and New York Rocker was kind of the the publication for Hoboken. There, there was a joke that um, was made in the New York Times um, by Robert Palmer, who was the New York Times music critic at the time, and it actually lived in Hoboken in the in the 60s and 70s. And he su- he suggested in the New York Times that New York Rocker changed their name to Hoboken Rocker because by that point, which was 1982, um, it seemed like almost every staffer at New York Rocker had, had moved over to Hoboken. So that was kind of their network. And WFMU, which was uh, at that point based in East Orange, New Jersey, they moved to uh, Jersey City, uh, you know, way more recently than that. But they were the local radio station. Um, uh, one of their DJs, Frank O'Toole, who's still on the air at WFMU, uh, was a bartender at Maxwell's and he was the first person to bring Yola Tengo into WFMU and have them do a live set, which was 1985. Um, and that sort of initiated their, their still very, very strong connection to the radio station. What about, uh, I found, find this interesting, um, these softball games on Sundays. Oh, right. It, that that okay. sounds like that's a pretty important part of the, you know, the cohesion of this group of people. Yeah, absolutely. They played softball every, uh, every Sunday 
um, at a place that they uh, they nicknamed um, Dioxin Field or Dioxin Park, which was kind of this, you know, I don't know, you know, if you look at a map of Hoboken, there it's sort of squared off by these bluffs, and on top of the bluffs is Weehawken. So there's kind of, there's literally a a northwest corner of Hoboken. Um, and that is where this field was. And every Sunday, Ira and Georgia and a bunch of their friends would, would go play softball there. And it became this sort of meeting point for the, um, for the Hoboken world, for the Hoboken music world. A lot of the Maxwell's people were regulars there as well as people in bands like the DBs and the Bongos. And, um, oh, Hoboken wise, I should also mention that it was starting a little bit later, but there was, uh, the, the Jersey Beat scene, uh, the Jersey Beat zine, uh, whose name is a takeoff of the Mercy Beat, uh, zine from Liverpool from the 60s. But, uh, Jim Testa, uh, was also a softball player and he, he started up his zine in the, in the early 80s. Um, and yeah, it just became this, this kind of this musician softball game that happened every week. It moved to, uh, it moved to Manhattan, not, that much longer after it started in Hoboken, but even in Manhattan, it continued on for a while. And it kind of became this, you know, just this place that musicians met each other. I think, um, I think that was the first place Yola Tango met Pavement was, um, was on a softball, was at a, one of the softball games. I think that particular game, what I remember was organized by Gerard Kozloy, who was, who became the, who at that point was the founder of Matador Records and wasn't technically a Hoboken softball game, but it was sort of this, you know, common connection point between all these people. Mm-hmm. Um, let's get a little bit more to, to, to Yola Tango specifically, I yeah, think. Sure. Um, the, 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 another theme in your book, I guess, is, is their evolution. And I guess, I don't know, for lack of a better term, how they mature as a band. Um, why don't you, uh, tell us about Yola Tango and specifically, how have their live shows evolved and separate or not, how has their studio work evolved? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think both their live shows and their studio work kind of both stem from this, this, this central problem of, of how do you, of how you mature as a rock band over, over a long period of time. And I think both of those things happened. Um, both of those, um, maturations happened because, um, because of their reticence, because of Georgia and Ira's reticence to play. When they started off, neither of them were really sure what they wanted to sound like. They kind of had this impulse to make music and do But it wasn't like, you know, they had this great vision of what they wanted Yola Tango to be. They just knew that they wanted to be in a band. So their live shows evolved as they got more confident and as they got better as musicians. Georgia, when they started, wasn't really keen on singing, um, either on stage or, or in the studio. And it took a couple of years, um, really until like 1990, before she started singing like kind of full time with the band um, at shows. And that's kind of like this very major evolution point in their live show. When they started, they're, you know, they were a rock and roll trio. It was guitar, bass, drums. They, you know, had this rotating bass slot. They really have a hard time, you know, keeping this, keeping third member. Georgia started singing. It's kind of like then the band had this new piece to them, this new thing that would like really like attract you to them and make you want to go see them live. And gradually started starting at that point, they would just, kept adding pieces to that, be it, you know, new or new original songs or new covers or new instruments, or in the case of, um, in the case of 1991, uh, James McNew, who became their, their full-time permanent third member, who was really, to me, it's just so improbable, um, that he would come along at that point and, and, and join that band. He was, Perfect for Georgia and Ira, both personality-wise and musically, um, in the obvious sense that he could play the bass and, and fill out the guitar drums part, but just has a beautiful singing voice um, and just a really innate musical sense that you, you I can never give enough credit to. Like, the, he just, just was able very instantly to be able to find, like, the perfect 
musically cohesive parts to fill out Yola Tango's songs where, you know, at that point, which is, you know, 91, 92, a lot of, you know, Yola Tango songs were kind of noisy, guitar-oriented stuff. And James is able to find these, like, really super melodic bass lines that kind of put Ira's guitar freakouts into these really beautiful frames. Um, and that, just, at that point, which is, you know, you know, 92, 93, you know, beginning with the album Painful, their songwriting and their recording just started jumping by leaps and bounds. And they, they started working collaboratively, um, which I think is kind of the, the point when Yola Tango becomes what we think of as Yola Tango. And the band acknowledges that as well, um, that, you know, they might have been playing shows for, you know, eight years as Yola Tango, but there was a moment when James joined the band when they really started to feel like a band for the first time. Um, and specifically, Ira points to a moment where there was like one day at practice, they just finished recording an album, they didn't really have any gigs to practice for, where they set up um, an ace tone organ that had been lying around their practice space. It belonged to one of the other bands they shared the practice space with. And they went through the whole practice with Ira playing organ instead of guitar. Um, just, you know, sort of trying all their different songs and seeing how they sounded with, um, with Ira on the organ. And that added this whole, and then they very quickly brought that organ on the road with them. And that added this whole new dimension to their show where suddenly they weren't just a guitar rock trio. They now had an organ and that added just so much more color to what they were doing. Um, and, you know, a year or two later, that would have this equally impact on their songwriting, which began, which began to grow and change, especially after they started working with Roger Moutinot, um, the, uh, their producer who worked with them on every album from Painful until um, Popular Songs, their most recent one. Um, and the new album that they're about to put out, they, they, they worked with somebody different for the first time in 20 years. But, um, Roger Mutno, like James, was kind of like this perfect complement to, to Yola Tango's, um, collective personality and that he was really patient and was able to, like, help them figure out how to create, um, the sound that they wanted. And by, and, you know, when they got to albums like Painful, there was a sound that they were going for where you have songs that were simultaneously kind of like loud and quiet at the same time. Um, Big Day Coming, which, you know, I yanked the name of for my book. Uh, if you listen to the, the so-called quiet version on, uh, on Painful, it's, you know, there's this guitar feedback that's going on and, the, you know, just finding the like balance between kind of George's whispery, quiet voice and Ira being able to play like, a big wall of, of noise on top of that and make that sound beautiful is a really hard thing to do. And, uh, Roger Mutno was able to do that. Um, and that became a, a really productive collaboration, um, leading up to, you know, leading up to and through, um, I can hear the heart beating as one, which came out in 1997, um, and was really their breakthrough album. And to me, that is, one of the most remarkable things about Yola Tango's story is that they formed as a band in 1984 and they had their breakthrough album in 1997, 13 years later, which is extraordinary. You know, when you think about bands, the other bands that are often associated with kind of the indie rock world that Yola Tango grew up out of, bands that are Yola Tango's contemporaries like R.E.M. and Sonic Youth, especially, if you listen to their first records, you know, if you put on the first REM EP or the first Sonic Youth record, they both sound like themselves instantly. Like from the first second of the first Sonic Youth record, it's like that's Sonic Youth. There's no question that's Sonic Youth. And both of those bands, and you know, REM especially became very popular very quickly. And Yola Tengo, their first single is this song called The River of Water, which is, you know, a nice song. But it's not a particularly grabby song. It doesn't, it's not a memorable one. They barely ever play it live anymore. It's not like a fan favorite or anything like that. And it just, it took them this, all this time to find their voice. And I think that, and that didn't really happen until they met James and until they met Roger. And, and those two pieces of 
allow that allowed them to kind of turn their live show into this something that's into something really dynamic and special and turn their albums into something that are really transcendent, you know, really transcendent. Um, and I, you know, I think that speaks a lot to Viola Tango's patience, which is one of, one of their key virtues. Yeah. A key virtue is, uh, it's an old story, I guess, but, um, talk about the importance of touring. They're a band that, that has never stopped touring at all. Um, well, yeah, they started touring in, you know, 1985, 86 and, and, and really haven't stopped. And it's, you know, they've found, it's where they found their fan base. It's where they found their voice and it's where they found a lot of their friends. Um, it's, it's really why I'm hesitant to use the word shy to describe Georgia and Ira because they're really extraordinarily social people and kind of in every city that they would go to, it would be, you know, they would be making these, these connections with local musicians and local, you know, local people booking shows. You know, one example of that is the first time they went to Chicago, they, shoot, I'm spacing on the place they played the very first time, but the person who booked the show is this woman named Sue Miller, who is, you know, a really big part of the, the, the Chicago indie world and who they remained friends with over the years. And many years later, I ended up marrying Jeff Tweedy from Wilco and is, you know, really still part of that world and still connected with Yola Tango. Um, and that's, you know, that's how they met James is that they played shows on the road all the time. They met the band Christmas that he was in and, and connected with them. And it, you know, it, it, yeah, it was, it, it gave them that, that infrastructure to build a fan base, um, and give them a place to develop. It wasn't, you know, they weren't expected to put out, you know, a new buzz single every few months or put out a video or anything like that. Their, their responsibility was to go out on the road and, and, and play shows. And that was something that they were, you know, able to do over the years and get better at and more confident at. Um, and they really got the touring down to a science. You know, they, both George and Ira and James now are, are huge food buffs. So they were able to, they were really very early, um, kind of pioneers in kind of the road food, the rock and roll road food game. Um, and would go on to inspire a lot of people, including, uh, Robert Sitsima, who became the, who's now the food critic for the Village Voice, but was the food critic for the New York Times. And, um, he, at that point, he played in a band called Mafungo which were kind of local friends with Yola Tango. And um, Ira went out on the road with Mofungo as a sound guy and brought with him uh, the book Road Food, Good Food and kind of turned Robert Tietzema onto this world of exploring local eateries and, you know, finding, like, snoots, which are pig snouts in St. Louis, or finding amazing barbecue or, you know, all these kinds of things. So... For Yola Tango, it wasn't just kind of this like wrote going on the road debauchery story. It, it became this way of life for them that they that they really cherished in their own way. And, you know, they um, it was definitely hard and frustrating in a way that it was for pretty much any band that that spends time on the road. But they they really managed to find ways to to keep it interesting and and sort of make it feel like an extension of their life at home. Um, and they were always kind of exploring interesting things and it was, you know, they, they never really surrendered to kind of the business aspects of the road. And I think they, I think that's still true. So they try to make touring something that, that's interesting and, and vital feeling as opposed to just kind of this mechanical thing that you do, you know, when you record an album. And I think that has a lot to do with the kind of, uh, uh, this, this, the specific kind of success that they've found, you know, it's very easy to fall into the habit, um, later in your career as a rock band to just like, you put out an album and then you tour, you put out an album and then you tour. And Yola Tango's model is always just in tour and then occasionally put out an album. And they really have like parallel live, live and studio lives. You know, it's, when, you know, when they go out and tour, they don't reshape their entire live show to like present the brand new album. It's more like the 
the the new album fits into the framework of their live show. And they, they, you know, and for that matter, they don't, they, I've never heard them bury a new album. They, they will always, you know, you know, bands when they get old will a lot of times play two or three songs from the new album in the midst of the greatest hits. Whereas Yola Tango really kind of integrate every new album into their repertoire and into their set list in a really, in just a very organic way. Um, like, you know, I mentioned before, I just saw eight Yola Tango shows. Well, it's hard to say I saw eight Yola Tango shows last week because it couldn't have, they couldn't have all been last week. But I saw eight Yola Tango shows when they played at Hanukkah and they were sort of debuting songs from their album that's coming out next month, which is, in my opinion, totally absolutely fantastic. And the new songs were the ones that I wanted to hear that I would just want. I wish they played more of, them. <laughs> you know. And I think that's a really great thing about Yola Tango is that, you know, for me, and I think for a lot of people, you go to Yola Tango shows to hear the new songs, not to hear them play the greatest hits. And I think that's a, a pretty special thing that they've carved for themselves. Um, getting back uh, to indie rock itself generally, um, uh, and you you, mo- you mentioned, of course, this moment of Nirvana, and you also bring in uh, Green Day as well. Um, how you know, indie rock, I think, maybe you'll agree, maybe you'll disagree, has moved from a structural movement to, to a genre on its own. Um, if you could address that a little bit, and how has that affected Yola Tango's career? Well, um, I think, you know, a, a, a big thing that you have to remember about indie rock in the 70s and the 80s and through most of the 90s, almost all of the 90s, is that the reason indie rock existed was kind of the central problem of music distribution, of how you could be a band that wasn't the Rolling Stones or Aerosmith or some giant MTV hit, hit, how you could be a band like that and still exist and have a career and a comfortable career and get your music out to people. So indie rock was kind of this way of creating this alternative, you know, network of, of, of distribution. Um, and when, when Napster hit and when MP3s hit and when really the internet hit, which was 1999, 2000, 2001, suddenly that idea of having an alternative distribution network didn't really it didn't make as much sense, you know, I mean, it's still, it, you know, it, it, nece- you know, absolutely necessary, but it, it, it suddenly wasn't as kind of this like special magical thing because with the invention of the MP3, suddenly everybody was independent. Um, and I'm not sure I agree that, I mean, any rock has been a genre in, um, you know, pop, in the populace of, of the term in that, you know, there are satellite radio stations that call themselves indie rock, and people who do marketing will refer to indie rock or indie films or indie fashion or indie whatever. Uh, but I, I also feel like as a useful genre name, it's, it really lost a lot of meaning. Um, and I, I, what exists of indie rock now is that I think it's really a social network in the, in the pre-internet sense of the word. Um, indie rock in the 80s was, wasn't necessarily a genre. It was a thing, the way like the surrealists were a thing or the way, you know, the beats were a thing. It was, it was a social group that kind of existed and had networks and grew out of that. Um, the network happened to also include, you know, record companies and, and, and publications and, 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 you know, radio stations. But I think in the 21st century, indie rock is, you know, it's it's a social network, and it's not necessarily an old boys social network, which is kind of nice. It's really it's still pretty malleable and open, but it's you know it it, it is it's a way of connecting fan to fan, um, and I think that's that that's still pretty cool, and and that's the way that Yola Tango still uses it, which is the way that they used it to begin with. It's kind of a way of of connecting with people, of, you know, having something in common with, with a musician that you don't necessarily know personally, you know, it's, it's a way of communicating. And, um, and I think Yola Tango has really continued to exploit that in a very intelligent 
very natural way. Um, and I, yeah, and I think that's why indie rock continues to exist and will continue to exist regardless of how people <laughs> use or abuse, abuse the name to describe, to describe music. And, and that said, it, I, it's, I, I do think there, there is actual music that I think you can call indie rock and there are kind of genetic connections to Yola Tango, but I feel like it's a very, it's a superficial term to describe the kind of music that Yola Tango make, even though it might be an accurate one. Um, so yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot in your book and we, you've covered most of it. Um, we can't get to it all. We'll just have to encourage our listeners to actually read the book. Um, but there is a quote towards the end that I like a lot. You say that Yola Tango never needed a message, only excuses to play. Uh, what does that mean? Well, I mean, it means that, you know, when they started to play, it, like, you know, like I was saying, they didn't have a grand vision. Kind of the impulse to do it was the impulse to do it, you know. Ira wanted to play guitar. Georgia wanted to play drums. They, you know, they, they, they found something of value in, in the form of communication, um, of playing music together. And, 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 and I think that's still true is that it's, you know, they, they play together because they want to play together. It's not be, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's another quote in there that I'm going to paraphrase where, you know, Ira, says, and I believe him, that they never want to do anything because it feels like an obligation or because it, you know, it feels like, you know, you know, it's the point on the calendar that they have to record a new album that, you know, they're really trying to find their own narrative and their own reasons for doing things that are different from other people's reasons for doing things because Yola Tango are individuals and they, they, you know, I don't, you know, despite the fact that they are connected to this network of indie rock. I don't think they've ever stopped thinking of themselves as like actually independent and autonomous intellectually speaking or, you know, musically speaking, you know, they do, they do things for their own reasons. Um, and I think that, you know, that has a lot to do with it. Um, and it, it connects actually back to, um, the point of that, you know, sort of what I, what we were talking about before with them, you know, sort of touring endlessly is that they continue to, they continue to have band practice, you know, pretty much every week and sometimes multiple times a week, you know, sometimes three or four times a week when they're not making a record or when they're not practicing for a tour, they just get together because they get together. That's what they do. That's their, you know, that, that's their lot. That's their life. That, those are their lives. Um, and I think that's really very, very important to them. Like very, very important to them. Um, so yeah. Yeah, it's a fabulous book and very well written. I, I liked it a lot. Tell me, um, uh, what are you up to now? Do you have any, what are you writing now? What are you, what are you doing? Well, um, I've spent the last while since finishing the book kind of back and back doing the same stuff that I was doing before the book, which is, freelancing but um i'm actually in the very very first weeks literally the first weeks of a new book project which um is tentatively titled uh heads biography of a psychedelic america and you know that that part might get tweaked a little bit but it's basically a like a cultural history of of deadheads and kind of like the deadhead continuum of of taper culture and, and psychedelic culture and, and, and all these different threads and streams that I think feed into American popular music in a, in actually kind of a similar way to indie rock. Um, but growing out of the Grateful Dead world in, instead of indie rock world. Um, and I'll be working on that for the next, uh, oh, the next two years or so. And, um, it's, and it'll be published in 2015, so mark your calendars now, I guess. <laughs> well, um, thank you, Jesse, for being on our show. I appreciate it. Totally, uh, totally my pleasure. And I guess I'll, uh, I'll also point out that I'm still hosting a weekly radio show on WFMU. Um, it's on very, 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 very late at night, which is 3 to 6 a.m. Uh, on the Monday, Tuesday overnight, but it can be listened to on the uh on the world wide web at wfmu.org all the archived episodes go up 
the day after. So um, I'm in I'm in WFMU every week playing my favorite new music and making sound collages and playing old music and having friends come hang out and stuff like that. So, you know, if you ever need music to listen to, I do recommend it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jesse. I appreciate your time. You've been listening to a conversation with Jesse Jarnot about his book, Big Day Coming, Yo La Tango and the Rise of Indie Rock, published by Gotham Books in 2012. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.